Hello once again, dear listeners, and thanks to you as ever for tuning in to the Nasty Pasty Podcast. I'm your omnipresent chatterbox, Andy Roberts, and I'm back with my weekly update on the scuzzy relics of the Video Nasty era, bringing to your attention long-forgotten artefacts of a bygone era that would have once flooded the local newspapers and dominated the news at ten. As repeated so many times previously, this podcast is linked to the Video Nasties, but unlike most podcasts dealing with the same subject matter, I look at examples outside the official list and compare them to the prosecuted titles, if anything to highlight how bloody stupid it was to ban horror films in the first place. I've covered films from all sorts of genres from many different countries, and today is no exception. The theme of today, though, is montage horrors, horror films whose structure depends almost entirely on a pastiche template, with sudden changes in tone, image and quality, leaving the audience with a mostly disjointed, confused feeling. Since montage isn't really a genre as such, it still felt like the best word to describe these films, so we'll just run with it. Today's criminals on trial are Lucio Fulci's 1990 splatter opus, A Cat in the Brain, and 1976's horror anthology piece, Bloodbath, from Joel M. Reed. As it's not really a genre, so to speak, we can dispense with any condescending history lectures and just go straight into our first nasty of the day, A Cat in the Brain. As horror movie director Lucio Fulci writes his latest script, he's plagued with visions of cats devouring a large slimy mass of brain matter and sinew. We then see a dead woman on a gurney with a large slab of flesh missing from her leg, which is then being cooked up by a bespectacled man and eaten as he watches the television. We're then shown him dismembering another woman with a chainsaw, mincing the chunks of flesh from her corpse and feeding them to his pet pigs. It's then revealed that the latter images are scenes from Fulci's latest film, Touch of Death, which Fulci wraps up and goes for a break, wondering whether he should stop as he no longer enjoys the filming. 
As he sits down to uh, eat in a restaurant, he suffers hallucinations of the film when the waiter offers him steak, and his revulsion continues when he catches sight of a plate of eyeballs whilst checking out one of the special effects. Going home, he finds it impossible to sleep because of a neighbour operating a chainsaw outside, which causes more hallucinations of the film. In frustration, he goes outside to confront him, but sees the man covered in blood. In anger, Fulci destroys the man's paint cans and visits a psychiatrist called Schwartz for help, who informs him that he's suffering an identity crisis, where he's becoming unable to determine what is real and what is filmed. Back at the studios, Fulci is due for filming on another production, Sodoma's Ghost, and informs the actor about his role as a Nazi. He then begins filming, prompting the actors to indulge in a violent-tinged seduction scene, causing him to lament the depths that he's gone to. At an interview with a German news station, Fulci begins to hallucinate that the cameraman is a Nazi, just like the scene in his film, which then descends into a Fulci-narrated orgy sequence. In reality, he's attacked the cameraman, destroyed the camera, and started forcibly removing the news reporter's clothes. Swartz admits Fulci in for another session, suggesting hypnosis after saying that he's watched all of his filmography. As Fulci falls under, Swartz states that he will follow his orders and continue to suffer intense visions of his horror films, feeling that he's responsible for crimes, while Swartz, in fact, will commit them. Unable to remember anything, Fulci leaves, and later that day, Swartz attacks a local prostitute and murders her with a switchblade and an axe. Fulci comes across the scene and panics, driving off until his car breaks down. He wanders the countryside, happening upon a strange scene of a ritual in a graveyard involving a woman scared by strange beings. It then turns out that it's a film set supposed to be directed by Fulci himself. He then goes home to sleep it off, but becomes haunted by constant visions from his horror films, such as his wheelchair-bound neighbour becoming an undead monster, which then crashes through his home and runs a phantom victim over. Simply turning his tap on turns into a gruesome vision of a woman having her tongue ripped out and drowned in a public fountain, while looking out of the window alternately shows him a woman stripping for him and then a man being stabbed to death by a woman. He goes to heat up some lunch in the microwave, only for it to transform into a severed head, cooking and melting slowly, while a smashed bottle of gin turns into a corpse, swelling into a mess of gelatinous offal and foul rot. Finally fed up, he drives away to take his mind off it, followed by Swartz, who empties his vehicle as night falls to murder a couple making love in their car, first by stabbing the man to death, and then chasing the woman into the woods, where he slits her throat. He then enters a boathouse and murders a girl by eviscerating her with a meat hook, then proceeding to kill the two boys who enter afterwards after hearing the screams. A few days later, Fulci hears the news of the victims and assumes that he's the culprit, hallucinating driving over a transient on the road. Shortly after Swartz threatens his wife Katya for her contemptuous behaviour, Fulci books an appointment with the psychiatrist again, watching the latest footage from his film in production. He doesn't really help him, only to reaffirm himself that Fulci's work will condemn him for the crimes. Going to see Inspector Gabriella, presumably to admit some fault for the crimes, Fulci finds the house full of Gabriella's family, who are being systematically slaughtered, such as being stabbed in the shower, decapitated by chainsaw, or having their head forced off with the lid of a box. Suddenly Gabriella arrives and reveals that the family are in Sardinia on vacation, eliminating the murders as mere hallucinations. 
As Swartz sees footage of Fulci's film where a girl is strangled with a whip, he finally snaps and attacks Katya with a piece of piano wire, cutting into her throat and nearly beheading her. At home, Fulci has another vision of a girl having her head bashed through a window and heads out as a result, followed by Schwartz. After another vision of a girl being decapitated by a scythe, Fulci faints and awakens the next morning by a cat who's digging up a patch on the field. Gabriella arrives straight away after Fulci uncovers Catcher's body, and as Fulci believes he's guilty, Gabriella explains that he tailed him after the incident at his house and found Schwartz, who tried to run from them. He reveals that he's now dead, shot whilst trying to evade them, and implores Fulci to take a well-deserved break. Apparently on holiday, Fulci relaxes with a girl called Lily, who used to work for Schwartz, as they arrive on a boat. The pair descend to the brig, where a chainsaw is suddenly heard and Lily screams as well, after which Fulci arrives on deck with a basket of severed hands and fingers. This is then revealed as the final shot in his latest movie, wrapping as Fulci then goes off for real with Lily on vacation. Your eyelids are getting heavy. You can't keep your eyes open. You're getting drowsier. And drowsier. You just want to sleep. Sleep. Now listen to me. You will do everything I tell you to do. When you hear this sound, Your mind will make you live scenes that you think are real. You will slowly be possessed by madness. You'll think you've committed terrible crimes. But I'll be the one who kills and wreaks the horror, just like you do in your films. I'll create an evil being who everyone will think is you, a mad bloodthirsty monster. Now, I'm going to waken you, but you won't remember anything except that when you hear this sound, your actions and your behavior will be conditioned by the thoughts I transmit to you. Now you can waken. That's it. You can open your eyes. Sometimes known as Nightmare Concert, A Cat in the Brain is quite a puzzling piece for director Lucio Fulci, but at the same time, it's one of his most personal projects. Mainly, of course, because he actually stars in it as himself, and the story, however crudely stitched together, revolves around his personality and life as a horror film director. The plot manages to be a bit ropey for many reasons, which we'll get to in a moment, but due to an abundance of gory sequences, odd character interactions, and a meta film structure, the film could accurately be dubbed as a bit of a mindfuck. It's also notably a meta film, completely aware of its own conventions and tropes, purposefully referencing them in order to say something a bit more meaningful about the subject matter. Coming out in the 90s, the film is a precursor to something like Wes Craven's Scream, which took a massively sarcastic and knowing take on the slasher genre. Fulci's film, however, takes the theme of excessive violence and gore as its modus operandi, with a more vague subject matter of the effect of horror films to those who view them. 
As a result of this focus on the visceral, Cat in the Brain throws its audience a continual barrage of gore scene after gore scene, with very little to connect it together other than some very threadbare wraparound segments involving Fulci seemingly going mad. Because most of this material is culled from Fulci's other filmography, or part of the collection that he's produced, the film has a very disjointed and Frankensteinish feel to it, almost like it's fallen together by accident and been roughly dubbed over with an overarching narrative. It's rather childlike too, in that our attention is constantly being drawn to something else more visually and violently exciting while we strain to figure out the big picture that's set in front of us. While Fulci's work is often described as simply an excuse to string together a bunch of special effects sequences, in no other example is this more true. And while it brings both positives and negatives with it, one certainly can't deny that this film is truly memorable. Director Lucio Fulci stars as himself, or at least a version of himself, who's in the middle of filming a few of his movies and struggling to deal with the everyday aftermath of helming vicious scenes of perversity and violence. In his usual everyday business of going for a meal, seeing a friend, or even just trying to relax at home, he's constantly bombarded with intense hallucinations which resemble the violent scenes from his movies. Becoming disturbed at these intrusions, Fulci enlists the help of a psychiatrist, Dr. Egon Swartz, who not only gives the director some dodgy advice, but actually encourages the visions through hypnosis in order to commit heinous crimes himself, convinced that Fulci's profession alone will convict him of the crimes. It's a rather flimsy and contrived plot, to be fair, though no worse than your regular exploitation splatter film. What is particularly evident, however, in this example is that the sequences of story are not only de-emphasised, but they're almost irrelevant. The film functions much better as just a catalogue of depravity from our wonderfully regarded Fulci. And originally, the film was meant to have no dialogue whatsoever, simply being a large sequence of bloody images and mutilations with accompanying music and sound effects. I take it that this is where the title of Nightmare Concert came from, as though horror fans could have got their very own splatter film version of something like Disney's Fantasia. I can't really stress just how warming and fuzzy, though, it feels to have the legendary Fulci taking centre stage in his film. It certainly could have been easy, and while he's playing a fictionalised version of himself, the fact that the grandfather of Gore has our undivided attention for the majority of the film is quite cool for those of us who were unlucky enough to have never shaken hands with him. His character in the film certainly seems hard-working, shooting two movies at the same time, so it's no surprise that his peers and crew members feel that he's simply buckling under the pressure. It's unknown whether Fulci's visions happen purely by chance, or whether they're instigated by Schwartz in an unseen moment, and just simply maintained until we see him hypnotising Fulci. But regardless, his grotesque visions of death and destruction often push Fulci from in front of the frame to perform their magic. By juxtaposing these sequences, it truly feels as though the director is a slave to these horrific images, and we feel that madness as the blood and sinew seems to be ever-present on the screen at the detriment of any grounded story. Despite having quite a few characters knocking around, the others are really not that much to write home about, even more so than the average NPC-style fodder that crops up in these movies. Even the killer, Schwartz, is barely established as anything other than a random madman who just gleefully explains his plan out loud whenever Fulci is out of earshot and has little justification for perpetuating his crimes other than his wife Katya is matching him in terms of chewy cardboard quality. 
She simply lounges in her bed for the majority of the film, eating chocolates and taking phone calls, like an Italian version of Sybil Faulty. Like any decent meta-serial killer, though, Swartz at least hams it up to make it entertaining to watch when he strikes. Lily, the receptionist, only appears for a few seconds here and there, and has little to her character other than she works as Swartz's receptionist, and gets with Fulci by the end of the movie. Quite honestly, though, that's about it in terms of character. The plot doesn't really require complex players to make it work. As is the usual case with these not-very-well-drawn character films, the special effects and moments of violence are what gives this film its unique aura. We have almost too many sequences of squirm-inducing displays to really catalogue properly, but suffice to say, this is a very Fulci-esque list, containing the requisite eye-removal, flesh-eating, stabbings with knives, hooks, spikes, crushings via wheelchair, hand-removals, decapitations via razor, chainsaw and even toy chest, strangulations with piano wire, microwaved heads, Nazi orgies. Quite frankly, the list is nigh-endless, simply because the amount of material is overwhelming, easily comprising of most of the film's imagery. What's rather novel, however, is that almost everything violent, barring a few exceptions, is taken from one of Fulci's own films, or at least a film that he had a hand in producing. The eye removal, for example, is from 1990's Hansel and Gretel, whilst a scene of tongue removal and subsequent drowning, as well as the wheelchair sequence, is taken from 1989's Bloody Psycho. The Nazi seducing the woman in bed by hitting her, as well as the bizarre Nazi orgy sequence, is from Fulci's Sodomer's Ghost, while the child's decapitation, shower killing, and the killings at Gabriella's house are all from Mario Bianchi's 1988 film Don't Be Afraid of Aunt Martha, or The Murder Secret as it's sometimes known. Schwartz's killing of the prostitute is from Andrea Bianchi's 1989 slasher Jallo film Massacre, as are the kill scenes of the kids in the boathouse, while the cannibal killer and the opera singer footage are from Touch of Death. There's also a scythe decapitation from 1989's Escape from Death, and finally, some of the sound effects and music are from the beyond, most notably in the scene of Fulci destroying the paint cans. This is not exhaustive, however, as I haven't actually seen any every film that Cat in the Brain is composed of, so it is quite difficult to determine where it all comes from. I feel that this is meant to be similar to the plight of Mr Fulci in the film, though, like not being able to discern whether something actually belongs to this film or not. He's continually struggling to grasp whether his visions have a footing in reality or are simply fallacious. But thankfully, the experience for us is at least entertaining as we get some real highlights of Fulci's gross-out career. But for those who aren't fans of this high-octane bloody roller coaster, they may struggle with the lack of an actual story. The actual message that the film seems to be sending, though, is quite poignant, however, as it seems to almost pander to the conservative viewpoint that watching on-screen violence can cause real-life violence. It was interestingly the view of the censurias during the video Nasty Panic, and it's even utilised today in modern America, where mass shootings are committed on an increasingly alarming basis. Fulci's film pretty much plays into their hands by suggesting that Fulci is becoming a killer due to his constant exposure to violent imagery. The killer, too, is seemingly inspired by the acts of violence that he sees in Fulci's films in order to commit his gross acts of assassination. 
though rather knowingly, Swartz is completely aware of what he's doing and he uses the commonly held belief that horror film directors are messed up perverts in order to justify blaming Fulci, spouting the infamous line, After all, doesn't that stupid old theory say that seeing violence on the screen provokes violence? By exposing it in this way, Fulci is almost saying that the theory is actually more dangerous than the supposed material, as it allows a get-out clause and a legal loophole to those wishing to commit murder by blaming it on horror films to escape their culpability and responsibility. This is near proven by the fact that Fulci is completely normal as soon as he's out of the clutches of the mad psychiatrist, enjoying a holiday with his leading lady. Ultimately, Cat in the Brain is as fascinating as it's irritating. The desire to gross out the audience by assailing them ceaselessly with montage after montage of blood and guts will certainly appeal to a certain set of horror fans, myself included. But those wanting a bit more plot for their entertainment will likely be turned off by the experimental rough-edged gem that Fulci has honed. The film is certainly worth a watch regardless, just to get an hour and a half of the pure, unexpurgated look at the mind of Lucio Fulci. At this point, I don't even really need to speak about Lucio Fulci anymore. We've covered him I don't know how many times on the show, and since this film is pretty much his career rolled into one feature-length splatfest, should probably just go back and listen to some of the earlier stuff if you don't know who he is. He obviously played himself in this film, as well as directing and writing the script. He did the full Tommy Wiseau on this picture, and I'm so glad that he did, because the passion really does show through. The psychiatrist murderer, Swartz, was played by American actor David L. Thompson, who also appeared in Beyond Justice and Godfather Part 3. Lily was played by Paola Cozzo, who was in Lamberto Barva's Demons, and Fulci's later film, Demonia, while Katya was played by Melissa Longo, whom we've encountered before when we watched Salon Kitty and Fraulein Devil. The bizarro neighbour who's using the chainsaw was actually Vincenzo Luzzi, who was a property master for Fulci on many occasions, like on Sweet House of Horrors, House of Clocks, Escape from Death, Demonia, and also Hansel and Gretel. From the sequences of Touch of Death, there was Brett Halsey, who played the cannibalistic killer. He'd been in Luigi Cozzi's version of The Black Cat, Fulci's Demonia, Godfather Part 3, and also The Devil's Honey. The opera singer from these sequences was played by Rhea de Simone, who'd appeared in Women's Camp 119, while The Tramp, who was run over, was played by Marco de Stefano, who also appeared in Bloody Psycho. From the sequences cold from Bloody Psycho, there was Sasha Darwin, who also cropped up in Fulci's Touch of Death. From the Sodomer's ghost bits, there's the German actor Robert Egon, who played the Nazi in the Seduction and Orgy sequence. He later also appeared in Massacre. Czech actress Zora Karova had a very brief appearance in this footage as a succubus. Now, we've seen her before in Fulci's New York Ripper, of course while Claudio Aliotti, who was in Emmanuel Around the World, also appears in this segment. Teresa Rosauti, who appeared in the footage from Sodoma's Ghost, went on to become a very successful casting director. And there's also Paul Muller, whom we've seen before on House of Witchcraft and Barbed Wire Dolls. He shows up as the wheelchair victim from the footage of Bloody Psycho. From the murder secret footage, Jessica Moore appears as the shower victim, a la Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. She'd also appear in Sodomer's Ghost. 
and from the scenes of Massacre, Maurice Poley appeared, who'd been in Barber's Five Dolls for an August Moon, Touch of Death, Hansel and Gretel, etc., etc. Then there was Lupka Lenzi, whom we've seen before in Sweet House of Horrors. She reappears in footage from Massacre as well. And then finally, there was Annie Bell, who appeared in the video Nasties, Absurd, and House on the Edge of the Park, but she appears briefly as the victim from the Escape from Death sequence. As mentioned before, Fulci directed and wrote the film, but he was assisted in the writing department by Giovanni Simonelli, who worked on The Crimes of the Black Cat, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, Ark of the Sun God, Bloody Psycho, Escape from Death, and Hansel and Gretel. There was also Antonio Tentori, who worked on Fulci's later film, Demonia. It was produced by Antonio Lucidi, who also produced pretty much all of the films in Cat of the Brain, uh, Sodomer's Ghost, Massacre, Escape from Death, Bloody Psycho, Hansel and Gretel, and Touch of Death. Another producer, Luigi Nannarini, also worked on the same drawer of films, but added to that was Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye and Luigi Cozzi's Star Crash. The iconic Fabio Fritzi, who did some of Fulci's most famous soundtracks like The Beyond, City of the Living Dead and Zombie Flesh Eaters, also returned for Cat in the Brain, while Fulci's most trusted editor, Vincenzo Tomasi, returned to work with him as well. We should honestly have a segment though for Nasty Pasty, dedicated to Giuseppe Ferranti, who returned to Fulci's side to do the extra bits of makeup required for the newer film segments, as well as actually being the makeup artist in most, if not all, of the stock footage segments. That's about it for the crew though, really. The film was understandably very cheap to make, and it required very little in terms of money, reportedly costing only around $100,000 to realise. Being released in 1990, the film had passed the Video Nasty era by almost a decade, so there was absolutely no chance that it would have been seized, but I've also got no doubt that had it been made earlier, this would certainly have been flagged as obscene. The sheer amount of gore present would have, in my mind, made it an absolute certainty. Although, it did get the next best thing, as a VHS release proffered for a 1999 debut was rejected by the BBFC completely outlawing its sale until 2003, when more sensible guidelines were followed and the uncut release was unleashed onto the public for the first time. It's since got the special treatment from 88 films and is now available in a special remastered Blu-ray with lots of special features. So, that was Cat in the Brain. Let's move on to our other tableau vivant of the day, 1976's Bloodbath.
A wedding ceremony involving a devil, a man named Peter, and a horned woman takes place and concludes with the pair agreeing and kissing. Shortly afterwards, Peter is seemingly killed by the devil when he offers a naked bound woman to the lord of the underworld, only for a call for lights up to be heard, revealing the whole scene as a film set for the director's hundredth horror film production. Peter gets the drinks ready and toasts his co-stars, Cynthia and Jerry, for a job well done. Discussing that the audience were afraid because of man's natural superstitions in the occult, Jerry begins to tell a tale of a murderer called George Lake, who killed over 60 people until he was blown up by his own time bomb. Known as a perfectionist who never made mistakes, George kills one of his victims, Candy, by picking his way into the apartment while she's in the bath and playing a pre-recorded audio of the woman's lover, Charlie, to lure her out, where he suddenly slits her throat. Playing another recording of Candy to lure Charlie in when he arrives, George stabs him in the back and is able to escape flawlessly as he was wearing medical scrubs. In the instant leading to his death, George produces a replica Attache case with a bomb inside to assassinate the owner of a car. Donning a fake policeman's outfit, he enters the car and swaps the bombed case with the genuine case. Fleeing the scene by car, he's then disheartened when he runs out of gas. A car pulls up as he walks away with a hippie offering him a lift, only for George to realise as he's got in that it's the same car that he's bombed, the hippie having stolen it in order to joyride. Making a swift exit, George makes a call at a cafe for a taxi, only for the hippie to turn up claiming that he's left his attache case inside, which then promptly detonates, causing George, the hippie and the entire cafe to perish. At the dinner table in Peter's studio, Jerry cites the story as proof that fate exists, considering the astronomical possibility of what happened, as well as the irony of the situation itself. Another story is told by another of Peter's friends, of a writer named Don who's both introverted and has a perpetually nagging wife called Shirley. Seeking to get rid of her, he goes to an occult shop to obtain poison, but the woman behind the counter instead recommends a small talisman that grants wishes. After successfully trying to get Shirley to handle it and wish herself away, Don instead grabs the talisman for himself and wishes that he were in the Napoleonic Wars, away from his wife. Finding his wish granted, Don is delighted to be away from Shirley finally, but he's less than enthused about the meagre rations, including grilled rats, and the terrible brandy, but he's most horrified when a war victim is carted in for an impromptu leg amputation. When two smelly women come in for entertainment, Don loses the talisman and is then forced into an incursion outside, where he becomes gravely injured. Finally grabbing the coin, he wishes to go back home again, just as his hand is amputated by the doctor, causing Shirley back home to become horrified as his severed forearm twitches and reveals the talisman clutched in his palm. After debunking this tale as being completely made up, Cynthia declares that she believes in ghosts, explaining that her father was killed by one. Her father, Ralph, is a racist loan shark who thinks nothing of evicting his tenants in order to gain more money. As his secretary leaves to go on vacation, Ralph relaxes in his safe with his mounds of money until he's suddenly interrupted by the appearance of a black man in the vault, who claims he's a ghost. Named Earl, he explains to Ralph that he died after Ralph had his car repossessed, forcing him to hold up a shop to get the money back, which got him shot. Earl is back to frighten Ralph into giving him the car's registration back in order for him to gain access to heaven. 
Ralph instead tries to get out of it and shuts him out of the vault, only for the ghost to reappear back. Instead of sorting out business, Ralph continues to brag about how he's made his fortunes, unaware that his secretary has returned to make sure that everywhere's locked away properly, including securing the safe door and ensuring that it's locked. Ralph panics that the company is now closed for a month and his wife is awaiting him in Paris, delighting Earl, who now knows that he's going to die. A month later, Ralph's wife arrives at the office with his secretary and realises that he's left his passport and tickets behind. His secretary admits that she must have locked him inside the safe, where they then find an emaciated figure laughing maniacally and clutching his money. Peter begins to get bored of the stories being swapped, but another lady wishes to tell of a kung fu fighter called Philip, who learned nine of the ten martial arts secret techniques from a master called Lu. Apparently breaking his code to teach martial arts for money, Philip begins to offer these secrets to his students and implores anyone who can't afford the techniques to steal the money. Another student of Master Lu, called Lim, appears to his new master, Lam, about Philip's actions, forcing him to go to America and confront Philip. The pair fight, revealing that both of them have only been told of nine secrets, but Lim reveals that upon learning the tenth secret, you can engage another master to win the temple's fortune and the ability to have servants. Lim says that Master Lam has arrived too in order to challenge him, but Philip is hesitant when he discovers that Lam has no limbs. Lam insists, however, that this is a strength of his, as he seems unthreatening, but he knows the tenth secret, so he's a force to be reckoned with. Philip gets cold feet, but discovers that all the exits are suddenly blocked by bricks, forcing him to confront Lam. Feeling that he can only win by shooting him dead, Philip is then shocked when Lam breathes fire at him. Waking up in hospital, a servant explains that Philip's gun discharged a bullet and killed Lam, making Philip the victor. But in the process, his body has been burned beyond repair, forcing them to give him a new body, which consists of a large blocky machine, which the servant turns off out of irritation at Philip's subsequent screaming. Back at the dinner party, Peter dismisses his guests but finds that the lady who told the Kung Fu story is hiding in the basement, who seduces him and they kiss on a couch. The pair are suddenly interrupted by a rattling locked door, and they go upstairs, while a hand breaks through the padlocked door and tears it off, escaping onto the streets. Outside, the creature attacks a woman waiting for a bus stop, while Peter discovers the mess in his basement addressing the missing creature as Conrad. Conrad murders several people outside as Peter goes looking for him, Spotting him about to attack a woman in her bed, Peter runs upstairs and shoots Conrad dead. As he dies, Conrad asks why Peter hurt him and refers to him as Daddy as the film ends.
It's another of those instances whereby I finish a film and I say a silent prayer for whoever made it a relatively short affair. Bloodbath, which is sometimes known as Horror Cocktail or Terror Night in the City, is a 1976 anthology film which centres around a horror movie director and his crew relating several supernatural tales in a campfire round robin. The aim of this is to convince the director to believe in occult happenings, as he's staunchly and vocally dismissive of the topic. So we get spooky, in inverted commas, stories being passed around to prove that there's more beyond our natural world than initially it seems. To be blunt, Bloodbath isn't going to be winning any quality awards soon, nor I suspect will it be clamoured for in a remastered version with all the modern bells and whistles, simply because it's far too mild. The title is incredibly misleading, as there's barely a drop of blood to be found, and the horror element is stripped back to the point of comedy, so I do question whether this would be anyone's favourite. Despite me being fairly negative on it, I at least didn't want to gouge my eyes out of boredom, which I almost got to when I was watching Panic. But at the same time, the overall cheapness of the production and the significantly toned-down violence and scary elements didn't really inspire good cheer from me. It started off relatively good, like the opening credits clearly being a reference to Halloween, with a skull on the left illuminated by flames and orange-red credits on the right. But the rot began to set very quickly with a very hammy mock wedding between a demon and our director Peter, especially when the scene was perceived by Peter's audience to be terrifying. I mean, were they watching the same thing as me? It was pretty garbage. I thought things might improve as the performances actually weren't too bad as we were getting introduced. There was even a moment where a German filmmaker criticises Peter's film for not being sophisticated. Peter retorts with, It's a New York film studio, what did you expect? You were scared though, right? Which I thought was an interesting point. At this stage, I assumed that it would be quite a meta film at this point, and it'd give you those unsophisticated scares and set pieces that would typify an American exploitation film. But boy, was I wrong. Instead, we get four stories of varying quality, and most, if not all of them, have the dubious predicament of being in a supposed horror film while not really belonging to the genre at all. The first one we get is probably the best one in terms of quality, following a hitman who very slimily kills his victims using an elaborate setup of equipment involving luring them using their lover's voice, getting away with it by donning a full hazmat suit type deal. The characters in this were adequate enough, though the roasted ham smell is very strong even now in the beginning. It had a satisfactory flavour to it as well, with the hitman eventually being killed by his own explosive device when a hippie keeps bringing it back to him. Apart from the whole make-love-not-war undertone of having a hippie being the one who's responsible for your undoing, the scene of George getting into the car, and us suspecting that it's the same car that he's just bombed, provided enough tension to be entertaining. But of course, the segment is quite small, and apart from the opening serial killer vibe that the story has, there's nothing particularly scary or supernatural about it. Why this tale out of dozens of other more compelling narratives was chosen at the dinner table is beyond me. The next story is probably my favourite one, simply just because of how silly and how memorable it is. It's the simple bored man wants to get rid of his nagging wife scenario. Though instead of dealing directly with her, Tom and Jerry style, with some hammers, knives and bombs, he instead opts to get conned into buying a coin slash talisman from the local occult store, 
for a mere $10, Don gets the chance to wish for whatever he wants, so you'd think he'd go away for a permanent vacation to the Bahamas, or perhaps slip into the life of a wandering gigolo with big-breasted girls on an endless trip through Miami. But instead, Donnie wishes to be back in the Napoleonic Wars. Apart from being a downright baffling choice, it seems to hint that there's something even more deeper happening in the subtext. I mean, Don's situation has just a tinge of repressed homosexuality about it, with him fantasising about the sharp steel of their bayonets, the edge of their officers' swords. The stereotypically whining wife Shirley then retorts with, Don't read in bed, it's so ungentlemanly. A rather telling moment, though, is when she says, Don't turn off the light, I like to make love in the light. To which he responds, Didn't we already make love tonight? It seems to be this latter indication that he'll have to sleep with his wife again that tips him over the edge, and he soon ends up with a very tactile, smelly Frenchman in a tunic for company. Even the women in his alternative existence are either grotesque or they're thieves, so the portrayal of women through Don's eyes are not exactly winning points. Having said that, though, Shirley is probably one of the most entertaining caricatures in the whole film, simply because of her drawn-out vocal performance and troll-to-like level of dialogue, where she actually identifies herself as her mother's daughter when she's talking to her on the telephone. We also get one of the few brief glimpses of blood in the film, consisting of harried limb removals in the name of 1800s-style medical treatments. It's cheesy, but it's quite fun that Don's severed hand is the only trace of her husband left, clutching the talisman. It has a goosebumps kind of vibe. The third segment, while hilarious, is so out of place in anything considered a horror picture. It feels much more like a short exercise in black exploitation, but without any of the action-packed sequences. Featuring what must be the most jaw-droppingly stereotypical black man outside of a Jack Hill movie, the plot follows the horrible Ralph, who's the most stingy, money-grabbing idiot since Ebenezer Scrooge. As per the typical moral tale, he's visited by the ghost of T-Bird Past, where a shady repossession ended up in Earl's death, and as a result, Earl badges Ralph to make the situation right in order for him to gain access to heaven. It predictably ends up with a dark twist, where Ralph is accidentally locked into his safe full of money, killed by the very greed of checking and almost frottaging his stacks of cash. There's little to no creepiness about this segment, especially with Earl's rather childish impersonation of a ghost, and the blasé manner in which his secretary realises that she's killed him. A flicker of joy, however, does come from Ralph's wife, who has the most delicious evil smile when she realises that her awful husband has potentially kicked the bucket. The ending of this, though, is rather disappointing, as her husband is seemingly alive, but replaced by a much thinner, older-looking actor. I'm pretty sure that A, he would have and should have been dead of hunger by then, and B, he absolutely wouldn't have aged or had his physical body morph from hunger. It was a little silly, and I felt a missed opportunity, really, to see this old guy rotting. The last segment, like the previous one, sticks out like a sore thumb for a distinctly martial arts theme. Following a rather truncated section of martial artists engaging in mystical, magical tomfoolery, it soon becomes apparent in this one that there's very little engaging choreographed content. There's not even a simple bus stop going on. There's just lots of dialogue, lots of badly dubbed, slightly offensive Asian voices, and one of the most what-the-fuck moments when the main idiot gets transformed into a VHS machine with a head. 
It soon leads to the wraparound segment, which predictably ends a little bit like the murders in the Rue Morgue, where a monster escapes from Peter's basement, goes on a little rampage, minus any blood of course, and finally gets shot by Peter as he's about to turn a bedside visit into a frisky biting. It even ends up transpiring that the monstrous Conrad is Peter's demonic son. I mean, wow, we didn't see that coming at all. It's unfortunate because there's a clear dedication to delivering a varied and different anthology experience, but the film just misses the mark rather badly. One of the issues is that despite billing itself as a horror movie, there's little dedication to anything actually horrific. The first segment is virtually a cheapo knockoff of a hitman espionage sketch, while the third and fourth are basically cheap riffs on the black exploitation and kung fu genres. The second segment is admittedly the closest to a supernatural ditty that there is. But the second issue is that the clear lack of budget on the film. Almost all throughout the scenes and the storytelling, the air of cheapness is pretty consistent. Most of the locations feel like sets and they look as though a sharp gust of wind would bring all the fake walls down. Even the music is very basic, harkening back to something like Blood Feast by Herschel Gordon Lewis though at least that film had utter buckets of gore to keep you busy. Which leads us to the last issue with the movie. For a movie called Bloodbath, there's such a lack of on-screen violence, which is pretty hard to do when there's a stabbing, a throat slitting, explosions, hacking off limbs with a samurai sword, rippings via claws, and it somehow manages to not show a smidgen of blood. The only flash of claret is when the second segment shows some cast-off mannequin arms, but it's pretty poor. Even the director's other cheapo direct, like Bloodsucking Freaks, at least had that gross-out gore to keep you occupied. This one has all of the stink, but none of the offal. Ultimately, there's very little to recommend about Bloodbath if you want to watch a horror movie. But on the other hand, if you're a fan of cheap, humorous ensemble films, you might find some joy. It's certainly got some moments which raise a smile or two, but it's just a huge disappointment on most of the levels especially as it's billed as twice as terrifying as your wildest nightmares. Unfortunately for all of us, it's not. Harve Presnell played the main guy Peter, an American actor who'd been in 1964's The Unsinkable Molly Brown, and later went on to star in 1996's Fargo, Saving Private Ryan, Mr. Deeds, and Evan Almighty. The Horrible Ralph was played by Jack Somak, who'd been in various TV programmes like Kojak, The Rockford Files and Starsky and Hutch. Ralph's wife was actually played by someone quite familiar, Doris Roberts, who's most famous for her role as Marie in Everybody Loves Raymond. But she also popped up in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and 2009's Aliens in the Attic. Don was played by Jerry Lacey, who later appeared in Wes Craven's Chiller, and had TV appearances on stuff like Knott's Landing, Saved by the Bell, The New Class, and Drake and Josh. Tom Tammy also made an appearance in the film, but it's not quite clear who he played, as the credits are all over the place, really. He also popped up in various film productions, like The Video Nasty, The Killing Hour, Sleepless in Seattle, Clear and Present Danger, The Thomas Crown Affair, Source Code, and even had a voice acting role in the video game Grand Theft Auto 4. PJ Souls is also in the film for two seconds, as one of Conrad's would-be victims. She, of course, rose to prominence after starring in Brian De Palma's Carrie, and then 1978's iconic Halloween. She's continued to work since as well, for example by appearing in Rob Zombie's Devil's Rejects. 
Martin Chikar also makes an appearance, who'd been in Saturday Night Fever, and a film that we've covered before, 1980's The Children. And finally, despite not spotting him myself, Sonny Landham has a credit in the film too, who was most recognisable for his role as Billy in 1987's Predator. The director and writer was also someone that we've encountered before, Joel M. Reed, who'd done the equally low-budget but memorably outrageous Bloodsucking Freaks, and he also did 1981's Night of the Zombies. He continues to appear in strange cult movies to this day, like 2015's The Fappening and the in-production film The Dysfunctional Mob. Producer Philip Dearborn only has one other credit on 1984's Young Lust to his name, while the fellow producer Anthony Fingleton wrote and produced Drop Dead Fred, as well as his own bi-autobiographical film Swimming Upstream. Michael Saal did the rather bare-bones Herschel Gordon Lewis-style tunes, rehashing the same sort of work that he did on Reed's other film, Bloodsucking Freaks. The cinematography, however, was done by Robert M. Baldwin, someone who'd worked on quite a few bloody good pieces of filmmaking. Notably, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which we covered before and it was amazing, all the way up to The Exterminator 1 and 2. He'd later also work on some of Frank Henenlotter's work, like Frankenhooker and Basket Case 2. Editor Victor Konevsky returned from Bloodsucking Freaks on this film, while the special effects guy returned too, Bob Obradovich. Graham Place, who was the assistant director on this film, had been a producer on stuff like Get Shorty, Men in Black, Wild Wild West, and The Men in Black 2. But finally, the assistant editor, Nobuko Ogaznov, worked as a sound editor on Silent Night, Bloody Night, and also Snow Beast. The film was released in 1976 after being completed in 75, but it had a very limited theatrical release. It disappeared fairly quickly in the US, and skipped the cinematic release in Europe and the UK too, fading quickly into obscurity. It did receive a VHS release in the UK in 1982 from Rank Video, right in the middle of the video Nasty Scandal. Now the film is incredibly mild and not exactly horrifying at all, but the cover made out that it was intensely gory, terrifying and a right hot cake to handle. Knowing what the film is like, seeing the VHS cover is rather silly, but it's this sort of blatant lying that got films seized. And lo and behold people, I can confirm that Bloodbath was indeed seized by the police forces. Not only was the cover rather provocative, but the film unfortunately shared its title with one of the DPP's video nasties. Bloodbath was also the UK VHS title of Mario Barber's A Bay of Blood, or Twitch of the Death Nerve, which was seized frequently and prosecuted successfully for obscenity. During the raids for these obscene articles, the police used these lists which simply displayed the title of the films in alphabetical order, with little indication as to the releasing company or the version of the film. Hence, because this film shared the same title, combined with the over-exaggerated ad copy, ensured that this otherwise inoffensive title got netted with all the rest of the rabble. I presume then that someone watched it and realised that they'd made a grave mistake, and then promptly returned it to the shelves. It then became banned anyway when uncertified videos were outlawed, but it hasn't shown up in the country since. This is notable for one of the few times I'm going to say this, but this is a situation when I'm not exactly bothered by the fact that it's not available. For those still interested though, the film is available to buy on Region 1 DVD, and I'm not sure, but I might even have a Blu-ray release too. 
Well, that's all we've got time for this week, folks. Huge thanks go out as ever to our usual listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. And as per usual, because I've got nothing better to do, Nasty Pasty will be returning again next week for another round of dubious exploitation films to wet those blood-craving taste buds of yours. We're purposefully taking a step back from horror next week and focusing on more of an action-based theme. It's no to the law and yes to getting your own back with two vigilante films covering The Exterminator from James Glickenhouse and The Executioner from James Bryan, something rather oddly known as The Executioner Part 2, despite there not actually being a first one. Yeah, it's going to be that sort of film. Join me next week, chaps and chapettes, for another dose of mayhem. But until then, quit swapping stories at the dinner table and don't get hypnotised by psychotic psychiatrists. Toodle peep! (laughs) 